ended the service last week, we ended with a challenge to uphold one another in prayer. And I hope and trust that you fulfilled your commitment to pray for one another this past week. We kind of took the opportunity and uh, had some of our deacons and deaconesses come up and we prayed over them. And uh, we encourage each of you to be praying for one another in the body of Christ this week. And I hope you did that. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged every time someone sends me a text and says, I'm praying for you today. Uh, I could sense that this week. I tell you, after two weeks being down with bronchitis and uh, just being worn out and just lack of energy and just feeling zapped, I, I could feel those prayers, and I appreciate that so much. And uh, don't ever take for granted that your prayer is not effective. Um, I believe that God honors when we pray for one another in the body of Christ, and we challenge you to, to do that. As we come into this next text of Scripture, we see an incredible example of a man who is full of grace and power. Uh, an example of a man who I believe, as the song said, was not alone. He had somebody with him uh, to encourage him, to give him boldness and courage as he fulfilled what God had called him to do. These two attributes, among many others, set him apart from, what, from most other men. His name was Stephen, and God used him mightily, and he paid the ultimate price for his courage and boldness, and that was death. So if you would, this morning, follow along as I begin reading in Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, so they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. Then they also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were, were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like that of an angel. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I ask as we come before you for these few moments, Lord, as we get into your word, I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to learn those things that you'd have for us to learn. God, I pray that we, if we've learned them, Lord, that you would remind them and impress them upon our hearts, that we may apply what you would have us to apply this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we said, as we come into this next text of Scripture, we see a, a snippet of the life of Stephen. And we see that he was a man, as our Bible tells us, a man of great grace and yet of power. And uh, so I want you to notice these characteristics just for a few moments as we work our way through this passage. But first of all, notice the characteristics of Stephen. There are two of them that stand out right away in the beginning here. Full of grace, full of power. The word grace, the word charis, you know, it's more about his disposition than it was of anything else. It's that which affords joy or pleasure or delight, a sweetness, a charm, a loveliness, a grace of speech, if you will. In other words, Stephen portrayed a spirit of joy, a spirit of pleasure, a spirit of delight. 
He was one of those guys that you enjoyed being around because of what God had done in his life, because of who God had made him to be. He was one of those guys that you'd want to spend time around. So when the God's word tells us that he was full of grace, full of grace, he was a man who had a great disposition, one of those guys who was easy to talk to, a guy who was easy to be around, a guy that you enjoyed being in his company. But not only was he a person of grace, he was also full of power. And this word dunamis here is the idea of inerrant power, power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. In other words, because of the Holy Spirit living within him and indwelling him and being, being controlled by the Spirit's guidance, he had power about him. He had an inherent uh, courage and boldness that exuded from him. Uh, it was his nature. Um, it was power for performing miracles, but it wasn't his power. It was God's power working in through him. So as you looked at this man named Stephen, he was a delightful man to be around, but there was something that set him apart. He was a man with being filled with the Spirit, had the power because of what God was doing through him. And remember, any time that anybody did something that was miraculous in the Word of God, it wasn't that person. It was God's working through him. There was nothing unique that Stephen said, wow, Stephen is so powerful, look what Stephen can do. No, it was, what, look what God was doing through Stephen. In fact, that's God's, what God's Word says that he's going to do. I say this verse often because I want us to realize it's not our own ability, it's not our own power that God uses or, or uh, works through us with. And I want us to understand the difference here. And I say this verse often, but in 2 Chronicles 16, when it says, the eyes of God run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Remember? To do one thing. To show himself strong in him whose heart is perfect towards him. In other words, it's never been about your ability. It's never been about your skills, your talents, or the lack thereof. God says, I am looking for people that I can show myself strong through. It's all about me, God says. And if you'll let me use you, I will work through you. And that's exactly what he was doing in the life of Stephen here. And it's exactly what he wants to do through all you and I, believe it or not. He wants to use us, but he's looking for a heart who's perfect, or in other words, that word means in the, in the Hebrew, mature. If you're mature enough to say, God, use me, he'll use you. And that's what he's doing through Stephen here. But notice what Stephen was doing also, again, in verse 8. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, these great wonders and signs, that by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known. I mean, the one thing that people knew about Stephen was that something good was happening through him. And just be reminded of this, that when good things are happening through certain people, other people get upset about it. When God is at work, other people don't like it. Satan and his throng doesn't like it. And, and also there's this jealousy factor that comes in. Did you hear what so-and-so just got? I mean, they got a brand new car. Can you believe it? And then you always have the other side. It's like, well, how did they do that? You know, they're always nitpicking and wondering and conniving. And when good things are happening, there are always going to be people who fight against it. Once again, this is what's happening. So there's a work of God being done through the life of Stephen here. And uh, these signs and, and these unique and unusual occurrences uh, that, are, that are being made known of. And Because when something happens like that, the word gets out. Whether you like it or not, people find out about it. And so these things are happening in the life of Stephen, and there's a group of people that don't like it at all. 
So these signs and wonders are, are being done, these miraculous things that God is doing through him, which is actually authenticating God's hand on his life. But as we said, as good things happen, somebody has to object. And so uh, you find that there's a group of people who are objecting to what God is doing here. So as God's word reminds us, that there's disputed by in several groups of people. First of all, it was disputed by those from the Freedmen's Synagogue. Now remember last week we talked about two groups of uh, Jews. There was the Hellenistic Jews and there was the Hebraic Jews. And we talked about the differences between them. Well, now we got kind of a, another party that kind of is attached to one of those parties. And it's called the Freedmen's Temple. Now these people here were kind of unique as well. The Freedmen's Synagogue. These were Jewish slaves that were captured and taken to Rome. Now freed and returned back to their land. And many of these guys were actually part of the Hellenistic group. So they're all about the, you know, learning the culture of, of Rome and then coming back and being freed again. And they're upset about what God is doing through the life of Stephen. Well then, so they, they disputed it. But then there were Cyrenians and Alexandrians. And of course, these are two major cities of North Africa. And these people are coming. They're here. I mean, the word is spreading out and abroad that there's this man named Stephen that God is working through and signs and wonders are being done. Miracles are taking place. And they don't like it. And then you have those from Cilicia in Asia. And these are Roman provinces of Asia. They were unable to stand up against the wisdom and spirit by whom Stephen was speaking, verse 10. Isn't that amazing? That people may not like it, but there's not a thing that they could do against it. But isn't that, once again, what God's word said would take place? That when his church would move forward, the gates of hell would not, what, prevail against it? And he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They may not like it, but they can't stop when God is at work. Amen? So if you want to be a part of something that is unstoppable, become part of what God is doing. And man cannot stop that. But here's the deal. When all the disputes don't work, then what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 11. Then they persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous works against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and, and so forth. When that doesn't work, here's what they begin to do. Three things. Number one, they persuaded men to lie. Blasphemy. I mean, I heard them say that there's blasphemy taking place. And of course, blasphemy is speaking evil of something God says is sacred. Uh, in fact, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, if someone was caught and proven to be speaking blasphemy, the crime for that sin was death. So part of these Jewish people still being persuaded that the law is a good thing says, well, wait a minute. This guy is speaking blasphemy. He's speaking evil things against God, and he should be put to death for this. So if we can't stop him with our words, we'll stop his life is what they were trying to do here. So they persuaded men to lie. Then they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. See, it wasn't just enough to say, well, I heard him say, now we're going to get this crowd over here, get them all riled up and get them all working against them, and we're going to get this thing going, and we're going to make sure that everybody that we have control over is going to be against Stephen and what God's doing through him. So it wasn't just enough to disagree. I'm going to get everyone else to disagree. But isn't that kind of how it works sometimes? I mean, I know it never happened in our church. It's never happened in anybody's churches that you know. But one person gets mad, and what do they do? they got to tell everybody about it and get them going too. That's kind of what they were doing here. It's not just enough for me to be upset. I want to get everyone else upset with me so that we have a team to go in against. 
So they persuaded men to lie, and then they persuaded people to be upset along with them, to serve the people, the elders, the scribes. And then, as if that wasn't enough, they presented false witnesses. And so uh, that's verse 13. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against the holy place and of the law. So, hey, if we can be upset with him and he doesn't care, well, then we're just going to get everyone else to care for him. And uh, we're going to cause this big ruckus. And so they uh, presented false witnesses. One way or another, they wanted Stephen's head. They wanted him to stop. They wanted him to shut his mouth. But Stephen wasn't going to do it. And I love what you learned a couple weeks ago as we were in the book of Acts. Is that when they put him in jail and then the angel comes, lets him out... And he says, don't say another word. And what do they do? They go out and they tell everybody. Because that's what's in their heart. That's what's in their mind. That's what was important to them. And you know what? We have the tendency to do the same thing in our life. When something is of great significance to us, when something is of great importance to us, what do we do? We tell others about it. How about first-time grandparents? They've got to tell everybody under the sun they've got a new grandchild. Why? Because it's a significant event in their life. When you get a new job, you tell people. When you get a new car, you tell people. When something significant happens, you tell people. Stephen had some significant things happening in his life, and he couldn't help but proclaim the name of Jesus. They wanted Stephen's head. But here's the deal. His face was like the face of an angel. In other words, I think we can safely say, as we know of what the face of angels do in Scripture... They radiate the glory of God. And as they stood before him, condemning him, he just stood there looking into heaven. And the glory of God radiated from him. Stephen, at this point, stands accused and is offered the opportunity to respond to the accusations that were brought against him. And we see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. He says, is it true? The high priest asked. Is all this true? You're speaking blasphemy and, and, and everybody has seen it, and even though they're false witnesses and so forth. Is it true, Stephen? Well, I want you to just look at four verses as we consider the answer to this question. Before we consider the answer to this question, the first one is found in 1 Peter. So I said we're going to jump around a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. He says this. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know, in our life, there are going to be those around us who question who we are in Christ. It's always going to be there. Do you believe the Word of God? Do you really believe that what's in that Word is true? The question was uh, asked... Uh, in a story that I read recently, is about a man who was a traveling salesman. And as he was going about from town to town, he was selling equipment for protection. And one of the devices that he was trying to sell was a bulletproof vest. And uh, the gentleman who was considering buying the vest said, I want to ask you three questions. He says, if I like your answers, I'll buy the vest. If I don't, I won't. He said, first of all, are you a family man? He goes, well, well, I guess so. 
He goes, no, no, not, not, not do you guess. He goes, are you a family man? Well, yes. Yes, I am. I have a family. I, I love my family. I'm a family man. Yes. Second question is this. Do you believe that vest would stop a bullet? Well, yeah, yes, I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be trying to sell it to you. Well, the third question is, do you believe in God? He goes, what? I'm a family man. I, I, I believe in the, the vest that stop a bullet. He goes, well, my third question is important too. Do you believe in God? He goes, well, what difference does that make? I'm here to sell you a vest. He says, because I want you to think whether or not you believe that God is more important than that vest or that vest is more important than God to protect your family. And he sat there for a moment and just about then, as the story goes, a burglar came in and started shooting. No one had the vest on, but God had obviously protected the man behind the counter. He says, I think it's more important to believe in God than it is the vest. As you look at these things, are we able to give an offense of what we truly believe? We say we believe in God, and that God is going to provide, that God is going to you know, be there, he's real, he's alive, he's, 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 he's living within me, he's at work around me. I believe in God, but yet I'm going to put my trust in money. I'm going to put my trust in my home. I'm going to put my trust in my job. I'm going to put my trust in my friends. I'm going to put my trust in my doctor. I'm going to put my trust in everything else, but I, I believe in God too. Are we truly able to give a defense an answer of the hope that lies within us. You see, I believe that Stephen stood before that council and he had those who were disputing everything that he believed in. He also believed that he could give an answer of the hope that lied within him and stand there with boldness and confidence. How about Titus chapter 1? Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says this, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Stephen was able to do that. He was able to stand before that council and say, this is what I believe on the authority of God in my life. This is what I believe. So holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Or how about Philippians? Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 1, verse 17. He says, The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerity, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. He says, listen, I'm going to stand forth with confidence. I'm going to stand forth with truth. And then Jude chapter 3, or Jude verse 3, earnestly contending for the faith. Are we learning to do that? So as the world around us may not believe what we believe, as the world around us may dispute what we believe, are we able to go forward with confidence and say, I know my God is real. And this is why. Well, notice that Stephen's message and commitment to the scriptures he refers to, 
This is amazing, and I don't, I don't have time to get into all of this, but I want to highlight a couple things here. As we go into Acts chapter 7, he says, Brothers and fathers, he said, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. You see, Abraham was a big, big figure in the Jewish culture, was he not? And they all claimed to be descendants of Abraham, their father Abraham. They all uh, uh, confessed that they were following the law that Abraham had helped establish. But you notice, there's something unique about this. The Jews prided themselves in being the children of Abraham. They prided themselves in their circumcision, their outward acts. They had a tendency to rely on their heritage rather than in faith in God. And Abraham, God's word tells us, was saved not because of uh, circumcision, not because of the temple worship, or by keeping the law. He was saved by faith because it says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He had faith in God. What does God's word remind us of this in this passage here? Look at John chapter 8, verse 33. And you see where I'm going to go with this just for a moment. In John 8, verse 33, says, We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? You see, it was all about the outward actions. The circumcision of the heart was more important, not of the body. How is your heart? They prided themselves in being the children of Abraham. They prided them in keeping the law. They prided in the fact that they were temple worship and they followed the, the rules. But it wasn't in the outward actions. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. It's not about what the flesh can do. It's not what's been going on through the flesh. And Colossians. So over a couple pages there, Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. It's amazing. It's not in what the flesh can do. It's all about our faith. And so Stephen stands before this Jewish council. And all these people who claim to follow the law, he says, even Abraham, your father, the one you claim to be descendants of, it wasn't about the circumcision. It was about his faith. And you didn't believe him too, either, by the way. Then he brings on verse 9 through 44, Joseph and Moses, both God sent deliverers. Sons of Jacob united in their attempt to get rid of Joseph, and the children of Israel united in their attempt to get rid of Jesus. He said, you didn't follow him either. It's been your tendency to not follow these people. 
Look at verse 9, chapter 7. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now, wait a minute. Stephen is doing a great thing because God is working through him. God is working miraculous things through him, and nobody likes it. Now Joseph is coming on the scene, and nobody likes him because of what he's doing and what God's doing through him. See, there's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be people who don't like when you are standing up for God. And he's just reminding of this council here that he's standing before that it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter who God brings. You reject them. That's your nature. And we're going to see that more in the end. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, God reminds him, what you meant for evil, I, brought, I meant for good. God can take all the hardships and all the trials and all the difficult situations and turn them for his own glory. That's what he does. And then he reminds him of Moses, beginning in verse 17. As the time... Was, as the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. And he dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive and, and so forth. So God has continuously through history brought people who would be deliverers. But they didn't want anything, part, any part of what God was doing. They wanted their own rule. They wanted their own kingdom. They wanted their own laws. And that's what they were felt good and comfortable with. Their own way. And we see this over and over. Once again, as part of Israel's history, they rejected God's man sent to be the delivery. How do I know that? Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and redeemed by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Listen, it doesn't matter who comes before you. And remember, Stephen is standing before the council giving them their own history lesson. And it reminds them, you wouldn't follow Joseph. You wouldn't follow Joseph, you wouldn't follow Moses. This is a pattern. You're not willing to follow anyone that God, God sends in. In verse 37, he says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and received living oracles to give to us. But our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Why? Because their nature was to be back into their sinful ways. What was Stephen's conclusion? I, I didn't take time to go through all these things. He brings up Joshua and David and Solomon, verses 45 and following, over and over. He says, every person God has sent to be a deliverer, to be a leader, every person that has come your way, you reject. So I'm not surprised that I stand before you guilty as charged. What is Stephen's conclusion here? Verse 51. He comes to four things here. Verses 51 through 53. 
says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You receive the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. I mean, here he is. He's speaking with holy boldness before those who hold his life in his hands. Four things. It says, you are a people who are stiff-necked. And remember in the beginning here, as Stephen stood before him at the end of Acts chapter 6, Stephen stood before them, and they were just, and they were just seething. Can you get the picture there? Look, look at this, Acts chapter 6. Verse 11 and following, when they persuaded some men to say, uh, verse 12, they stirred the people, the elders, and the scribes, so they came, dragged him off, took him in the center, and they also presented false witnesses. This man does not speak in blasphemous words. Verse 14, for we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and change the customs that Moses had handed down to us. And they just sit there and they stared at him intently. And they just wailed and gnashed their teeth and they're angry and they're just, Whoa! and it says they lifted up their voices as to, to the top of their lungs and just, Whoa! They're just angry at him. Because God was doing something great and they didn't want They wanted the glory. I mean, if someone's going to get credit around here, why not us? We're the religious ones, right? I mean, if someone's going to get applauded, why not us? We're the council. I mean, if somebody's going to get some type of glory, include us. But since you're not, nobody's going to get it. I mean, they were ticked off. And over and over... He says, you are a stiff-necked people. Number two, you are a people who resist the Holy Spirit. Every time God tried to do something, you resist it. Number three, you are a people who are filled with hypocrisy. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous ones whose betrayers and murders you have become. And then number four, you are a people who do not keep the law, though you think you do. You say you're part of your father Abraham? Nah. No, you're really not. Because he was a man of faith. You're not. You reject what God's doing. Abraham obeyed what God was doing. And it reminds them over and over. You're stiff-necked. You resist the Holy Spirit. You're filled with hypocrisy. And you don't even keep the law that you possess. Or think that you do. I want to read a couple of verses for you in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 39 says this. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Did that describe him? I think it does. Then down verse 46, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, but because you wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You think you have eternal life. You think you're a good person. You think you're following the law. Nope. How about in Matthew chapter 23? Another example of the same kind of things going on. 
Now I'm almost through. Matthew chapter 23, verses 28 and following. He says, In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the prophets' bloods. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Did that not describe them? On the outward, they looked religious. They were the, the law of the land, so to speak, in controlling the spiritual matters of the day. But here's the high priest's conclusion, verse 54 and following. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at them. <sighs> they were ticked at Stephen because he stood there with boldness. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory. Isn't that awesome? Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, you notice back in verse 2, what did Stephen, look at this, verse 2, brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the God of glory appeared to the father Abraham. The God of glory. He starts out with God's glory, and he ends it all with God's glory, verse 54. Or verse 55, excuse me. And gazed into heaven, he saw God's glory. He continuously radiated and pronounced the glory of God. His life was not about his own. He says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What was the high priest's conclusion? Well, he enraged. He was enraged in their hearts. They gnashed their teeth. They screamed at the top of their voices. And notice, verse 57, then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears and together and rushed against him. Who's the him? Stephen. See, Stephen paid the ultimate price for taking a stand for God's glory. In fact, God's word tells us he is the first martyr. A, murder is some, a martyr is someone who would not renounce their faith in God, but would choose to stand for his God and pay the ultimate price for it. What was Stephen's response in conclusion? I think three things happened in Stephen right there. First of all, according to verse 55, but Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. You see, I don't think there's any doubt in Stephen's mind as he stood there before these councils, before all these people who disputed him and what God was doing through him. There was no, probably in Stephen's mind, no doubt that he probably wasn't going to leave this place. They were ticked. They were clenching their fists, they were gnashing their teeth, and they were screaming. They were so angry. They had no dispute. No legitimate response to all that God was doing through Stephen. And Stephen had to stand there and give them a history lesson. Listen, you didn't listen to Abraham. You didn't listen to Joseph. You didn't listen to any, anybody that God has sent. You've rejected them. They did not want to hear that. And they had no other recourse but to get rid of this man who was confronting their sinfulness. And Stephen just stood there and just gazed into heaven. Because he knew his days were end, nearing the end. But not only that, look at verse 58. 
as they were screaming at the top of their voices and running against him. Verse 58. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. At the moment that they were rushing him, Lord Jesus, and he just prays out to his heavenly Father. And then the third thing is just really cool. I don't know I could have done it. Verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. This is Stephen here. Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. He died. He pleaded for his murderers. I'm just telling you, I wouldn't be pleading. I'd be looking for an AR-15. Calling in, hey guys, bring in the F-15s and bomb the living snot out of them. Well, let's be honest. Let's put this in the way we think. Vengeance is mine, saith Ken Todd. <laughs> oh, you don't like it? <laughs> you laugh, but you're the same way, aren't you? I don't know that I could stand there before this whole council and with boldness proclaimed the truth that they did not want to hear. And their response and anger and lifting their voices and nursing their teeth was just to charge them. And he just kneels down and begins to, Lord, don't charge these people with their sin. That's not how I'd respond. And if I were God, good thing I'm not, You do it too. I want to close with two verses here. First Peter chapter four, verse fourteen. It says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Was that Stephen? Verse two, he starts off with the glory of God. Verse fifty eight ends with the glory of God. And 1 Peter 4.14 reminds us, you are blessed because the spirit of, glory, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He paid the ultimate price. And in Hebrews, back just a couple pages here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God's throne. There it is. Stephen, keeping his eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith. Following Christ's example, being faithful to the end. I don't know about you, but how would you respond to these kinds of circumstances? Because they're not pleasant. They're not fun. I don't think anybody's saying, pick me. These are hard things that Stephen had to go through. And he did it radiating the glory of God. And I'm just going to tell you, I got two hands and a foot in this. 
we gripe about the dumbest and littlest of things in this life. We get ticked off when the waitress doesn't bring us our food right. Guilty. We get ticked off when somebody doesn't do what they say they're going to do. Guilty. How about standing before a council that's ready to take your life? Maybe that's a little bit of a bite to chew on. Because we're so much creatures of comfort that when anything doesn't go our way, we're ticked. And here Stephen is standing before the council that's about to take his life. How would you respond? But here's another question I want to close with. How would God have you to respond? I think Stephen gives us a great, great example. He just stood there, kept his focus on Jesus, and radiated God's glory as he stood before his accusers. Would that not be a good example for all of us? As things don't go our way, as people question how we live, what we stand for, But I think before we even get to that point, we have to take the stand for people to even notice first. Are we willing to take the stand and then stand with boldness and see what God will do? Let's pray.